Hello and welcome to another episode of the UK Airshow Review Podcast, the podcast that we started because we had no airshows to review. My name is Ian Garfield and joining me tonight is... Uh, I'm Dominic Vickery, Dom Vickery on our forum. Now, quite frequently in our UCAR staff group chat, someone will post an image, no doubt shamelessly lifted from the internet, but they will nevertheless invariably make us all gasp and reach for the rose-tinted spectacles. Everything ranging from iconic Cold War mixed formations to more unusual aircraft, special schemes, aircraft in markings of seldom seen air forces worldwide, etc. It really gets our juices going. And, as you can imagine, those who kindly took the time over the last 18 months to scan and share their slides and photos of air shows of years gone by has sent us into overdrive like you'll never know. Of course, we all have our own likes and dislikes. I mean, just mention the word Hornet to our very own Samwise and see what the reaction is. But there is always one aircraft we can agree on, and is usually followed by inappropriate or appropriate GIFs and emojis in our chat. And that aircraft forms the basis for today's podcast. I'm of course talking about the McDonnell Douglas F4 Phantom II, to give it its proper name. And no matter what Air Force, or whether it's flying or not, we all love the Phantom. And I'm delighted to introduce the Chairman and Technical Director of the British Phantom Aviation Group, Paul Wright, to the podcast. Paul, thanks for joining us. Um, The Phantom, what is it about the aircraft? Do you know what? I really don't know. (laughs) You tell me, the, the people that we deal with range literally from three well five years old up to 95 years old and they all love it male female you know ex-forces people who just like them for a lot of them they can't even say why some of them think it's beautiful which i honestly don't get it's functional so it is really difficult to say why people like the phantom perhaps it's just you know like a prize fighter it's got a presence and and it you know some people say it's alive. Is it? I don't know. I mean, I, I like them, otherwise I wouldn't have spent the last six years of my life preserving these three. But uh, no, I really can't say what it is, why people have just got such an affection for the aircraft. From a personal point of view for me, um, I can remember, it's going back years and years, um, had a computer for Christmas, like an Amiga or something, I don't know, donkeys years ago, <clears> and there was some drawing program on it and I got um, going to RAF Finningley for one of the air shows managed to get a free RAF yearbook and I think it must have been 92 something like that and I think it was a phantom on the front cover and I tried to copy this picture um, on this paint program did an absolutely crap job of it but it's something that stuck with me forever mm-hmm. and I, whenever I think of the phantom especially in RAF service that's something that, that, I, that I always link with something that I always think about but yeah you're right I mean we discussed in the podcast about people saying that an aircraft is beautiful and that sort of thing i don't think you can call it beautiful but yeah there is just i think just the presence of it really and just how it's all the nations that have used it worldwide and how it's still in service now yeah i mean that's so that that's the thing with with the longevity and it's one of the things i i talk about when i do cockpit tours that was designed in 1955 started the design first flew in 1958 that's 20 years after the first Spitfire. And that, mm. the pace of development of those 20 years is, is tremendous. Yeah. But the Phantom is still in frontline service. So you put that into perspective, that means people having Spitfires in frontline service in 2001. <laughs> the, the, there is that. It's just that it it's not the most advanced thing in the world. They're difficult to look after. They're intensive to fly. But they, they get the job done. They really do. You know, they're like an old Land Rover. Yeah, they might, I'm a pain in the 
but they get their job done. Yeah, I mean, we've, uh, well, Sam Wise, um, one of our staff members, uh, went to Japan and did a feature on the Phantoms over there. We were just gobsmacked with the photos. And it, yeah, it is still surprising that it is still in service. But like you say, it, it gets the job done. It's still serving a purpose, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it can carry £20,000 of external stores. You can hang almost anything on it. And they even used them as tankers at one point, believe it or not. Yeah, the US Navy developed it as a, as a body tanker for, um, for off the carriers so that if, any, if the deck was blocked for any reason, the returning aircraft wouldn't run out of fuel. Um, in the end, they didn't use it, but they sold the entire kit to the Iranians who did use it. Um, so from a uh, personal point of view for you, what's, what is your connection with Phantoms then? Okay, so I was an RAF uh, engineering technician, and my first posting was two Phantoms, which I wasn't over enamoured with, <laughs> but they get to you. They get under your skin physically because they're sharp and stabby. But again, it's uh, you ask a thousand people, you get a thousand answers. For me, it was, it's the power and the noise. You know, I spent a lot of my life, well, a good chunk of my life at that time, turning the Queen's kerosene into noise and heat. And, and the sound of a phantom in full burner is it's visceral and that's that's what got to me and when the air force took them off and gave me tornadoes to play with it was one of the reasons i left the air force because it just wasn't that same wow. connection it's a technician's aircraft you they do talk to you in, in some ways you have to know their little foibles and and silly ways and what you can and can't get away with um and that also, running forward many years, is why I got involved with the group, because I wanted to run one again. <laughs> Labour of love then, really, I guess. I, yeah, I believe so. Some people say we're mad, and I wouldn't disagree with that. But you see people's faces when they get in the cockpit. You see the the people that walk up to us at shows that have, you know, that they go, oh, I've loved these my whole life. I was never in the Air Force, but I remember seeing them at air shows. And I met six or eight guys over the weekend who are now going to be our also going to volunteer with us who are our ex-ground crew and to this day miss working on them you know which is crazy because we put huge amounts of hours and a lot of blood sweat and tears in, into keeping the things flying when they were completely ungrateful because they just break again <laughs> it's an analog airplane as well the, the later ones are digital aircraft yes from if you're the operator they were better because they spent less time on the ground less time being fixed but as a as a maintainer, you just weren't as involved. Mm. And as we said earlier, Phantom's got a presence. Our display cockpit 490, because it's up on its leg at the correct height. It, it's it's kind of intimidating when mm. people walk up to it and think, that's nine feet above me. And of course they climb up into it, which is a, a challenge in itself for some people. And then they see it, and they sit in there with all the dials and gauges, and you can see their eyes like, how on earth could anybody ever learn how to operate this? Going forwards after um, you came out the RAF then, um, how long was it before you started the uh, the, the group up? Oh, I'm, I'm not going to take the blame for that. The group the group was started long before I got involved and it was started with a specific intention of saving one particular aircraft which was XV582 and um, I found that because it was on my old aircraft. Just looking through Facebook for my old squadrons, found 582, joined the group. Let's say because I loved working, it was a chance. You know, everyone's got to have a hobby, and made that mine. Mm. And then 
over the years since then through retirements and ill health and, and just people's priorities change. Um, suddenly found myself as being the chairman of the group. Um, we, we achieved the group's initial aim, which was to save 582 from the scrap man, and that's ended up in down in South Wales with the the uh, the guy who backed the the project. Which, you know, it's fair enough. He paid for it, so he takes it to his museum. But we, you know, we did the work, and on the back of that, the, the publicity and the the um, amount of volunteers we got has been tremendous for the group. And yeah. then once that project was completed, you know, we like we're here with the British Phantom Aviation Group. Had this crazy idea of setting up a dedicated phantom museum. Five years down the road, we're on the cusp of setting up a dedicated phantom museum. A day I never thought I'd actually see, to be honest. Yeah, I was reading about that earlier, actually. Um, it, it, something very different, isn't it? Um, I suppose if you compare it to, dare I, dare I mention the Vulcan. Um, but actually, it, it's, a, it's a different... Again, it's an iconic airframe, but something a bit different. Yeah, I mean, you know, this will be, as far as I know, the only dedicated Phantom Museum in the entire world. And we've currently got the second biggest private collection of Phantoms in the world. There's a museum in America got five, but we've got three different marks, and they don't have the marks we've got. So this will be the only place in the world where you can see those three together in the same place. And just to clarify, uh, 582, that's... Black Mike. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay, excellent. So how Sorry, did the group? So... No, no, it's fine. I, I'm not. Yeah. There, there are plenty of people, especially in our, in our staff members. You'll reel off registration. They don't know exactly what you're talking about. They yeah. know when they've seen it. It's uh, yeah. probably me. It's a squadron thing. A lot of people use tail letters and names, but yeah. like for a squadron, we used the three serial numbers, yeah. and it, it stuck. And we do that yeah. for six years of your life. It sticks. So, so how did you go from? getting involved with 582 to preserving that to then moving on to you know, essentially having three airframes so uh, when the 582 project was over you know we had a lot of goodwill we had some money behind us we had a lot of volunteers and it was kind of I suppose it's kind of like the space program you know what do we do next what, how do we keep the momentum that we've gained from, from 582 and the goodwill and the PR thanks to Adrian what do we do? And um, a chap by the name of Mark Abbott had been in touch with us before, and his father and his uncle were both ex-Phantom engineers, and he said, you know, I'd like to buy one as a memento to them. You know, it, it's something he'd grown up with at various bases as a child. So there were a couple for sale, and we pointed in the direction of XT597, the Raspberry Ripper one, and said that is probably the... You know, along with Black Mike, that is one of the most significant Phantoms in the world. It was the, it was a development aircraft for the particular mark, and more importantly, it was the very last UK Phantom to fly. So, persuaded him to put his hand in his pocket, um, and at the same time, we were getting badgered by uh, Tony Clay, who was a member of the 74 Squadron Association to go and look at um, ZE360, which is an F4J uh, variant, which is in the fire training school in Kent. And he'd been pesters for all the time during Black Mike, but we were so focused on that. And eventually went down, did a survey on it, and said, OK, it's a challenge, but because it's the very last one, we have to buy it and save it, otherwise 
we couldn't really hold our heads up to say we were the British Phantom Aviation Group and let the last one of a line go to the scrapyard. And then running forward about a year from that, um, an FGR2 or an F4M came up for disposal from Everett Aero. And um, this time it was me that stuck my hand in my pocket and I bought it um, on behalf of the group. The, the, uh, it will eventually be um, transferred across to group ownership. Um, but we needed money, it needed to be bought at that time because of circumstances around Everett Aero. So, uh, yeah, it was a bit of a crazy gesture, but it had to be done again. And that left us in the position where, say, that crazy idea from a few years ago of having a dedicated Phantom Museum suddenly became a very real possibility because we had the assets to do it. You mentioned um, ZD360. Um, I remember seeing. Uh, all sorts of threads on our forum about it, of how it was going to be disposed and actually to be used as the um, fire training um, airframe at Manston. Um, it's am I right? Is the last F4J um, airframe? Is or is it the only one? Well, that's correct. The the um, when the air force was a little bit short of, of aircraft in the, the mid 80s, they purchased 15 ex US Navy F4Js. They were upgraded um, to what was called F4J UK specification and, and brought over and put into squadron service. Um, there are all, all bar two of the airframes at the end of the service were destroyed, um, either by just being chopped up or by being used for burning training, battle damage training, that kind of thing. The US Navy took one, or the US Air Force took one, to the um, American section of the museum at Duxford and repainted it into US Navy colours. Um, the rationale behind that was that that aircraft had Vietnam combat history. It had done two combat cruises and had something like 600 hours of combat time over Vietnam. So, you know, for them, it was a significant aircraft. And that left two down at Manston. Uh, the other aircraft that was down there sadly was destroyed during live fire training. But then the environmental rules changed and they were no longer allowed to burn aircraft because we're burning mixed materials and fuel and oil, mm -hmm. quite rightly so. You know, there's a lot of environmental pollution there. So 360 became what's known as an egress trainer where they took the campers off and used it to train fire crews to get, you know, uh, incapacitated aircrew out of the aircraft. Then things changed because there were no longer any two canopy aircraft left in frontline service, so it was just pushed across to one corner of the trading area and abandoned effectively. Sat there, sadly rotting away until we came in, dug it out of the hole that it's in, uh, and made a start on getting out of there, which has been a challenge to say the least. <laughs> so, in terms of restoring airframes, uh, how many is it that you uh, have completed or have, have assisted with? So we we did 582, we dismantled that, moved it, rebuilt it, and then dismantled it again and sent it to South Wales and, and the owner's team put it back together with the assistance of one of our guys. So that's the whole aircraft and then we are currently in the process of dismantling 360. We've moved uh, 597 and 905 twice and as far as full restorations go the cockpit of XV490 which is a resident at Newark Air Museum that was actually our first project as a group 
myself and the previous chairman, we um, we spent the summer, in fact, no, a year actually in the end, carrying out a full restoration on that aircraft and uh, blow my own trumpet, we won an award the first time it was displayed, so that was nice. Yeah. So what actually goes into the process when you're restoring? Obviously, you want to get it as accurate as possible. Is it... But can you just outline the process of, of how you do it, what you decide to do, and is it difficult to get all the parts and things that you want to do? So if you're talking about uh, cosmetic restoration and paint scheme, we'll decide on what we want, and that will generally be driven by availability of reference material. In the case of 490's cockpit, we had photographs of it from the 90, early 1980s when it was in service, and we also have one of our group members um, his name was on the side of the aircraft when it was in service he was the navigator for the aircraft that pretty much decided what the color scheme was going to be we had half a dozen reference photographs a couple you know three or four from each side so we knew what we if there were any variations to standard <clears throat> and then as reference we've got the uh, original technical manuals for the paint scheme with all the stenciling the markings everything else so that, that aircraft is as accurately painted as it possibly can be. When it comes to the physical restoration, the first thing we do is strip it down. So um, once we get the aircraft at Cotswold Airport under cover, they'll be scrubbed clean, and then all the external panels will be removed so we can inspect inside, clean, deal with any corrosion, treat that, and then repaint the internal panels. Then the external panels will be temporarily refitted just to keep the birdies out. Um, any lightly corroded or damaged panels will be repaired. Uh, any heavily damaged or corroded panels will be remanufactured because the panels are not interchangeable between aircraft. So we will um, we'll have to manufacture our own. It's not that difficult to be honest with you. It's, it's what I was trained to do and it's what I've done pretty much my whole life. It's handy. Yeah. So in terms of the three airframes you have now, what what are the the long-term goals with them uh, in terms of preservation, paint schemes? We'll come okay. on to the move to to Kemble in a second because that just blows my mind. But <laughs> yeah, if if you talk about the airframes now, what's what's the aims with them? Okay, um, you, I don't know if this should go out on a, a restoration podcast, but <coughs> I don't like museum aircraft. A, a static aircraft is you may as well look at photograph. So the long-term goal, the ultimate goal for all three is to make them functional restorations so the systems will work. People ask about taxing them, but oh. that's, that's a, a whole different ball game, both in terms of cost and liability um, and, and the, just the work that involves. But my long-term goal for all three aircraft is to make them fully functional because then they're alive, the visitors come, and especially the younger generation, they can see it moving and working, and they can see it's not just a piece of tin sat in the corner of a building. It's an actual working aircraft. <clears throat> and I use my my ten-year-old. He's my guide, if you want. I take him to museums and see what he's interested in, and that's that's how you know, bouncing off him is how. So right, these need to work. It keeps them, and also aircraft that aren't working generally fall apart fairly quickly but when they're when they're working then you know, they kept they get kept that way and by keeping younger people involved because let's face it everyone that's on that's worked on them is the wrong side of 50 by a hefty chunk 
we need to mix them out of keeping younger people involved and enthusiastic and being able to train them on how to look after the aircraft. So it's not just my kids, but my kids' kids and their kids that mm. can get to see these. I mean, if you um, take the Jaguar at Bentwaters that's mm. recently uh, been, I say, put back into service, I, I mean, where I am in Wolverhampton, it's a bit of a trek to get over to Bentwaters, but if I had the opportunity to see if there was an event where it was going, I, I would go and see it. I would travel <coughs> far and wide. Um, yeah. I, I think a Phantom would have, if not saying a, a, a after-burning uh, run, but even if it was just serviceable taxi, I think that would just be amazing. 100%. Really would. Yeah, I mean, you only have to look at the draw, the days the Thunder used to get at Buntingthorpe, and the guys, the Buccaneer guys at Kemble, or Cotswold Airport, the, the amount of people that as soon as they advertise a, a, a running day, a taxiing day, they're sold out instantly. Mm. And yeah, you, you know, if somebody said to me, we'll give you free rain, then yeah, I'd go for that. I'd have to be careful with the reheat runs because it's an asphalt runway at Cotswold and they don't think they'd like us melting. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, I, yes, I would love to have a running airframe, but it's a bridge we'll cross when we come to it. Mm. So, yeah, they are. You know, people. I think it depends how the museum is, uh, how they're situated, how everything's placed in the museum. But yeah, I, I think you are right. If it is something that is able to to come to life, it does put a whole different spin on on things, doesn't it? It's 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 a lot more interactive, really. Yeah, very much so. You need to attract the people who don't know what it is. It's mm. all very well and good. Somebody going in like, excellent. Look at that phantom. The person you need to attract in museum is a person who goes, oh, what's that? It's a phantom, you know. Oh gosh, look! The out part, the outer parts of the wing move. You know that's incredible. Because they're hooked there, and they think, you know, it, the aficionados are fantastic, and the lifeblood of the of the actual work. But but for reaching the greater public, you need to get beyond the enthusiasts. You really do. Um, the best example, or if you want, is I don't know if you know Valentino Rossi, the motorbike racer. He took motorbike racing away from bikers and made it popular with everybody. And having living, breathing aircraft gives you that. Something you can show up to people who aren't aircraft enthusiasts as such. It just expands your fan base, if you want. And so how, at the moment, you're based at Cotswold Airport, uh, Kemble. How did that come about? Because I, from my understanding and reading about the group, that wasn't initially the first choice. No, um, the first choice. Okay, yeah, the first choice uh, was uh, Wimsworld in Leicestershire, uh, for totally selfish reasons. It was ten minutes from my front door, <laughs> and uh, I got in touch with the, the chap who owned it, and uh, and we went there, and then COVID happened. And in so they were stored there for nearly the best part of two years because we couldn't really do anything at all, you know, with the, the social distancing rules and not being able to fundraise properly because we couldn't get out and meet the public. <clears throat> and of course, in the meanwhile, Buntingthorpe shut down, you know, commercial reasons. And the Buccaneer guys moved down to Cotswold, and uh, one of the Andes that runs it messaged me and said, You really ought to come and talk to these people, we think it's a better option than where you are now. So I went down, had a meeting with the airport director and uh, the lady that, owned, well, her father owns the airfield, Suzanne Harvey. Had a 15-minute meeting with those. We shook hands and it was a done deal because it's a, 
it's a better uh, situation, if you will, than, than where we were before. And being co-located with the Buccaneers is, is good for everybody. And the uh, the management there at Cotswold Airport are very keen to develop the heritage side of things, which is why when we put forward a proposal for a Phantom Heritage Centre, <coughs> pardon me, they were they were more than enthusiastic. You know, they've they've they've, they've bent over backwards, but every time we've come up with something, they've said yes that's not a problem we can do that or yes you can do that that's fine by us that's good that's good to hear uh, and my favorite bit at the moment i've got to ask this question I've, I've posted it on our forum but someone's donated a building to you you know a warehouse yeah. <laughs> how how the hell did that conversation come about did you just get a phone call oh i've got this just warehouse that i don't want anymore do you want it yeah cheers i'll just just bring it down to to kemble and we'll we'll build it up how did that come about? That's that's just mind blowing. People love phantoms. <laughs> I mean, we we've had uh, oh, I'll cover that in a second. We we've had a tremendous amount of help from people. The RAF once flew some equipment from RAF Odium up to Cosford for us in a Chinook, because they like because the guy in charge of the Chinooks likes phantoms. <laughs> kind of blew everybody's mind. Now, as far as the building is concerned, uh, Mark Abbott, who's the owner of 597, the Raspberry Ripple Jet, he also owns a, a fairly substantial building firm as well. And his firm got contract to um, dismantle the building. For a, It's for a large national company. And he messaged me and said, we've got the contract to knock this building down. Do we need it? And so he sent me some photographs. And I said, well, yes, obviously. And uh, he went back to the client and said, rather than send this away for recycling, it's a steel frame building, rather than send this away for recycling, which obviously has a, you know, there's an energy cost and stuff like that involved. Can can we use it? Can we repurpose it into a, a visitor centre and, and restoration facility? And they were more than happy for that. You know, that's good PR, I guess, for them. And uh, yeah, like I say, it's the, the only... And the cost is moving it down to uh, to Cotswold rather than sending it, you know, moving it to wherever it's going to get cut up. The steel will get reprocessed. So on, on that that point of view, it's uh, it's good for, good for the environment. It's good for energy use. And yeah, people like phantoms. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And you're you've currently got a fundraiser going. To, is it twenty five thousand you're looking to raise to transport? And is that yeah. does that include? The, the reconstruction of the building or is that just for foundations? No, that's that that what that will cover is um, the digging out, stoning, uh, you know, the uh, underlay and all the concrete for the base for the building, and then the what we have because that's a, a longer term project, the dismantling of that building. Um, it's going to happen. It's just not going to happen tomorrow. And I want the aircraft under cover. Mark also put his hand in his pocket for a uh, a temporary uh, shelter. I say temporary, this thing's pretty big. It's 40 metres long and 20 metres wide and probably probably 15 or 18 metres high, glass fibre and vinyl uh, building designed for the military to put over helicopters out in hot, sandy places. So once the concrete's down, we move the aircraft under the cover, uh, under, onto the concrete once it's uh, set off and then we'll put the temporary shelter over the top and that will get them out, out of out of the weather and give us somewhere to work on them while the building disassembly uh, project goes ahead. Uh, as you say, we've got a, a crowdfunder going there, which is a, a Phantom Heritage Centre, if you search under crowdfunding, where people can donate money to us. And we've got some tremendous awards on offer, which are incredibly popular. There's a few money can't buy things, as well as some things that are incredibly 
as soon as we put rewards up, they're normally gone within an hour or so. That's good. We'll put some yeah. links in the uh, the podcast. At, well, links oh, in the description at the end yeah. as well. So let the PR guy do that. Just. <laughs> 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 uh, one question I wanted to ask, um, it's just about, I know this is unique to the United Kingdom, do you have any links or deals with any other, if there are any other sort of phantom preservation groups or fan clubs or anything similar across the world? Yeah, so um, I do have regular contact with a, a chap called Kurt Van Breeder who runs uh, smoke trails in America, that's if you want the American equivalent of us. Uh, although they don't have an aircraft, they are simply a, a group of um, phantom enthusiasts. 14,000 paid subscriber group. So they, they, they do quite well. And they produce a magazine and uh, say their memberships and meetings and things like that. We also um, work backwards and forwards with Ulster Aviation out in uh, Northern Ireland because they've got a phantom as well. And we've helped them and they've helped us. Um, uh, there are other phantoms around the UK, such as there's an aircraft down at Wattisham. Uh, one of our members is also an active member there, so we've helped them with a few bits and pieces, and and again backwards and forwards between us. So, and um, up at Solway near Carlisle, they they've got a phantom up there, which is currently wearing three of our external fuel tanks, which we lent, put them, gave them on long-term loan to dress the aircraft. Uh, internationally, we've had. Uh, conversations and backwards and forwards with um, the museum at Kabylie, uh, just on the outside of Prague. Chap there by the name of Peter, for one of the better. I'm not quite sure how he pronounces his <laughs> name, but Peter's pretty close. He 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 came back with some questions about the markings, and we sent him information about so they could do their markings accurately. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a and we also deal with a chap in Malta who runs a um, digital magazine. He's quite a fan of ours, and we, we provide him information, and he gives us free advertising space, which is nice. Oh, that's good. So, uh, it's, that's um, good. One of the nicest things was when we went to to buy ZE 360, and Tony got in touch with the disposal agency, the MOD, about going to do a survey on the aircraft, <coughs> and they told him, "Oh, you need to talk to the British Phantom Aviation Group; they're the experts." So. That was kind of nice that we, because they didn't know he was part of the group. So that was kind of nice that they told us to come and survey our own aircraft. <laughs> Paul, thanks for coming on to the podcast. It's been great to have you on. Oh, no problem at all. Uh, I hope we can get together again and uh, do another another episode on the podcast. Maybe a bit differently next time, just to find okay. out how everything is going, because I, I just think it's fascinating and a, a great achievement by well, getting the, the world's only Phantom Museum, really. If you've got any phantom memories you'd like to share, you can find us on the usual social media sites, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, etc. Uh, head over to the forums at forums.airshows.co.uk and share your phantom memories and pictures as well. Uh, but for now, that's all. See you next time.